Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Francine Lacroix in London, I'm Tom Keene in New York. And listening now, we know are so much of Asia and particularly the people of India. Kenneth Rogoff of Harvard University wrote a little book a year or so ago about cash, about corruption, about the underworld, about suitcases of cash going to no good. It is my book of the year. It is without question the most controversial book of economics in decades. Professor Rogoff joins us now on India. Let's first start with what Mr. Modi is trying to do. What was his change in policy for India? Well, on the same day that we were electing President Trump, the prime minister went on the air and said the two largest notes in India, the 500,000 rupiah note, four hours from now will be no longer usable. Boom. Boom. And you have 50 days to turn it in for other cash. Uh, That is radically different than the policy I propose, which is doing it over, say, five to seven years, uh, trying to avoid collateral damage. Within the collateral damage, what would be your advice to the prime minister now to move forward after this announcement? I mean, away from the debate about cash, what's Ken Rogoff's to-do list for India this morning? Well, that's a tough question. I mean, the prime minister cites a lot of the reasons, all the reasons that I give in the book of why cash is pernicious, uh, you know, corruption, crime, tax evasion, terrorism. But on the other hand, I mentioned his tactics are very different. And by the way, my book states again and again very carefully, if you're a developing economy, don't try this at home. Uh, You need financial inclusion. He's done a lot of things. I think India's reached a point where implementation is very important. There could be Mm -hmm. long-run beneficial effects, but it really involves, you know, doing things to assure people that in the long run we're fighting crime, we're fighting corruption, which is a huge problem in India in many ways. I have learned, and this goes back to one of your great mentors, Jagdish Bhagwati, that India is in each and every case always about domestic politics. What would the RBI, their central bank, do? And could Raghun Rajan, their former leader at the central bank of the Booth School of Chicago, could Raghu have stopped this tough policy, this bad policy? Well, I suspect they were overridden. Initially, when I heard about this, it seemed that the RBI was behind it, a joint you know, push. Sure. But I think as time went on, we didn't see Governor Patel, the governor who replaced Rajan, speak for a couple of weeks, which kind of made it clear that mm-hmm. they weren't. Um, it doesn't mean that they don't agree with the broad idea, but they might not have agreed with the tactics. Mm-hmm. They might have wanted to do it slowly and gradually, as others, say myself, would suggest. And by the way, India doesn't have a large note. Their largest note's $15. Uh, they introduced a bigger one in this to replace the old ones, which again is 180 degrees opposite to what I would advise for advanced economies. Um, if we focus on, on the news right, that, that we have had over the last two, two weeks, we had a record low for rupee, extreme volatility. Will this continue? 
Well, I think the thinking is eventually they will come out of this. They hadn't printed enough currency. We just don't know all the considerations of why this was so sudden. Evidently, word leaked that they were going to do it. Uh, I suspect that'll all settle down. And, you know, it's surprising how many Indian economists, people think in the long run, making this statement against corruption, which, of course, is India's number one problem, will have, you know, good effects. But uh, they have to get there. There have been really a lot of problems, a really poor planning, implementation uh, in the short run. But I think that'll probably sort out, but it isn't done yet. And I know the RBI, for example, put some limits on withdrawals from no-frill bank accounts. I mean, is it always a bad idea, Ken, to limit withdrawals? Yeah, I mean, they're a very awkward position that they hadn't printed enough currency. It's actually not that easy to print currency. It could take a year. I kind of wonder why they didn't do a maneuver like the Greeks had considered of stamping the old currency to create the new currency temporarily. I just don't know what the planning was. They haven't really described it. It's clear what the goals were, which I think are laudable, but the implementation and execution, they haven't really explained why they did it this way. Uh, there are p people who've recommended sudden currency moves. There was an economist in the mid-'70s, James Henry, who said, let's do a sneak attack on the criminals and the drug dealers. I think the collateral damage is just too great. In the case of the U.S., it looks too much like a default. Again, what is the, you know, the lessons learned? We've seen, um, you know, panics or volatility or whatever you want to call it in other countries. And as long as there's one or two lessons that you don't repeat, then the country will be okay. What's it in this case? Well, it's about implementation and planning. And again, in developing economies, the issue of financial inclusion is huge. Uh, you know, in the U.S., uh, it's very easy to cover that. My book explains how to do that. In India, Prime Minister Modi's taken a lot of steps. He's taken biometric data for almost a billion Indians, and you can get a bank account if you have that. But they're way away from doing that. Right. This was a very radical step to take. One of the strengths of your book, The Curse of Cash, is you put out front your critics. Atmar Ising on page 7, Lawrence Summers, your colleague at Harvard, on page 122. The great Ising of Germany, the great Summers of Cambridge, they push back against Ken Rogoff. Describe their caution about the curse of cash in your formula. Well, actually, Larry Summers has come around to be a big champion of getting rid of $150 bills, and that's been fantastic. Uh, Admar Essing, you know, cites Dostoevsky and says, you know, money is coined freedom. Uh, but I think there's a big difference between, you know, getting rid of big notes and getting rid of all cash. I am for less cash, not no cash. Is money a representative of freedom in Mr. Modi's India? Well, it's how a lot of the economy functions, its transactions. I think he would like, in many steps, the officials are so corrupt. I had a colleague who told me about her father sold an apartment just recently in a rural India. He gets back the deed that lists half the price that he paid because the official was paid off. This is routine business right. in India. Modi uh, wants to stamp it out. Francine, the curse of cash, Ken Rogoff on India. Of course, I'll put this out on social again today. Ken Rogoff joins us now. Now, Cabot Professor of Public Policy, Professor of Economics at Harvard, the author of Tom's Book of the Year, Much Ballyhooed Book of the Year by Tom, The Curse of Cash. We will talk about that uh, in a little bit, but some news at first. Ken Rogoff, good to have you with us. Thanks for being Thank here. Thank you. Good to be here. I'm very curious, uh, and I've been asking a lot of people about this, uh, the, the definition of, of Trump economics, what Trumponomics is, and, and here a few weeks after the election, are you any closer to 
to, to coming up with, to having a definition of what it is. No, I'm not. I mean, also, bear in mind, everybody's watching these appointments and saying, who's he going to appoint? He isn't locked in. This is a guy who made his living by firing people. And it wasn't so long ago, back in the Jimmy Carter days, even, you know, Lyndon Johnson, where they routinely fired people all the time. So what I'm expecting is not just to have, have a parade of candidates. I'm expecting a parade of appointees. He'll have a meeting. He'll have the three guys, you know, shame fully lined there. He'll go, you're fired, you know, or however he says that line. Uh, so I, I think he will recalibrate if he's not happy how things are going. Uh, I expect just as he recalibrates his comments, he'll recalibrate his appointees. So looking for some, some drama there uh, in the appointments, at least not immediately uh, down the line. What power does, uh, does a president, does a Treasury secretary say have to, to influence the trajectory of the, the U.S. economy right now? The Treasury Secretary's power comes a lot from their ear, the, having the ear of the president. And to the extent they do, of course, they have a lot of influence over legislation, especially with a Republican-controlled Congress. And I've got to say, there's a lot of talk about, well, Trump wants this, Congress wants this, he won't get his policies through. Yes, he will when he decides what they are. Uh, I think in the short run, there will be a honeymoon with the Republican Congress. A lot of them oppose Trump or didn't support him. They'll support him here. They'll give him what he wants and you know see how it goes. So I, I do think we'll see a pretty dramatic stimulus plan. I don't know if it'll be completely coherent, but I think we'll see something very dramatic. All the stuff about the Republicans won't go along with deficits. That's just nonsense. They wouldn't go along with deficits when they're spending it on what President Obama wanted. But if you talk, if President Obama had proposed tax cuts to get deficits, he would have got it passed in an afternoon also. So I'm, but exactly what shape this will take, uh, I think, you know, is uh, constantly morphing. There's no doubt about it. We're beginning to hear something of a debate here about the, the timing of those tax cuts or, or an infrastructure spending plan, whether or not now is the time to do those things. Do you expect that to be a robust debate in Washington? You mentioned the, the support he'll likely have from the Republican Congress. Well, I think I really think he can do whatever mm -hmm. he wants to do. We really haven't seen someone come in with this, you know, kind of uh, support uh, for a long time. I'm not, you know, in terms of having Congress and the Senate. Uh, it's been a while. And uh, I suspect he'll do what he wants to do. Yes, there'll be debate. There'll be op-ed articles. There'll be complaints. There'll be people say that I voted for even though I didn't uh, mean to. I, I think the infrastructure has bipartisan support. If he can't get the Republicans to support it, he'll get the Democrats to support it. Uh, that's something everyone agrees on. We'll finally get it done. The tax cuts are a whole other matter, and I don't even know what they're going to be. Right. I don't think it's the most effective form of stimulus, but it's been you know red meat for the Republican Party. He's going to get give it to them, maybe to get support in other areas. Ken Rogoff with us of Harvard University will uh, speak of India and the Curse of Cash, his book, and my book of the year. <laughs> I might point out we'll do that here uh, in a bit. Uh, Ken, you're in the class. You're, you know, Mancu's got a, a headache. You've got to teach <laughs> Act 10. You're in the basic undergraduate class teaching at Harvard. And somebody says to you, Vice Chairman Fisher, he's of a college down the road, MIT, uh, Vice Chairman Fisher says we're almost fully employed. Donald Trump got elected because we're not fully employed. Is it to Americas? And do we do our macroeconomics? Does Chair Yellen do our macroeconomics as one America, one mathematical distribution? Or do we need to always consider that there's two Americas in every discussion? 
Well, first of all, you're not going to get me sharply agreeing with Stan Fisher, who's you know a great a great man, and I think you know really understands the data. But it's sort of a definition of what it, does it mean to be employed, and I think the quality of jobs, the quality of life for many people hasn't improved at the rate that they thought. And I think Trump got elected on the back of that. That's the core of the populism with the middle class. But the policies to fix that are really much more about improving education. They're conceivably infrastructure, things you can do with the tax system. One area where I think maybe there's cause for some optimism is that business investment has just been awful all across the world. And if there is a coherent policy, almost any coherent policy going forward, uh, I think we could see a big pickup in business investment. That's the key. If you don't see that, it's not going to okay. be great for long. From your reading of history, can we migrate policy to create incentives for domestic investment? Can we do tax credits to make Jeff Immelt invest in David Gura's Ithaca versus Malaysia. I love Ithaca. I grew up in Rochester uh, like you, Tom. Uh, but I think they're much more important, much more important in Trump's policies are the how he handles regulation. Because uh, there's you know a lot of needed regulation, but at the same time, they're, they're, a lot of it's uh, hard to interpret. I certainly know some of the regulation that's for, come on universities has been dramatic changes, difficult to interpret. If it's been in other industries like that, it's hard to function. And where there's confidence, where there's optimism, mm -hmm. coming from that more than anything. I, I get the sense that, um, you know, when, when Congress takes up a tax plan, it's a tax plan that's on the shelf. Republicans have been talking about tax cuts and reforming the tax code for, for a long time. With regulation, I lived in Washington for a long time. I heard Republicans mostly decrying Dodd-Frank for years and years and years, but it was all about removing that law, uh, not replacing it. Uh, how nuanced do you think the conversation is going to be about about what regulation looks like here uh, under the new president? We're seeing anything but nuanced mm -hmm. conversation in the debate in America today. But, I mean, Dodd-Frank has a lot of problems. I think Dodd-Frank uh, does need to be fixed. Uh, they've known that. President Obama knew that. But they couldn't get anything through Congress. Usually when you pass a law, there's a whole sequence of fixes that you do, little technical fixes. They couldn't do it because there was so much uh, difficulty. So at a minimum, they're going to do that. Uh, I think we need to make the path for small and medium-sized businesses to get loans much better than it's been. They are the core of productivity in this economy. I think the that's where we've slowed down. Particularly the businesses that eventually get big, obviously, and you know, improving innovation, improving uh, investment, and Dodd Frank, you know, stopped us from having the financial crisis of 2040, but didn't necessarily generate the recovery we needed. Just uh, going overseas here for a bit, looking at Europe, we had the president of the Eurogroup this morning saying that uh, the, the UK would likely get access to internal markets uh, in the European Union. We saw sterling strength in, on that news. What do you make of how this has played out, how indeed this is playing out, this Brexit process and, and uh, what, it, what, it, uh, what it portends here for the UK economy? I'm very leery about the longer term. Uh, they want it, There's no precedent for this, of having this tightly knit trade deal and pulling out short of a war, civil war, revolution or something. It's not that easy to do. And by the way, negotiating the new treaties mm. is not that easy to do. Usually a trade agreement takes 
five years to negotiate, five years to implement, and that's fast track. And here they're trying; they have only two years to negotiate it. Then you know, three years for implementation. There's going to be a long period of exodus from the UK economy of people, mm. firms. Uh, they face a very difficult road uh, ahead. I think the Brexiters seem to have no idea what they're doing. I had been assuming they would back down. I had been assuming there was going to be a soft Brexit, but at least uh, Theresa May, you know, won't brook that. It could all change. Mm. I really would hold the possibility that they'll just, you know, pull out at the okay. last minute. Though the French yeah. seem to be pushing them out the door. Ken Rogoff with us, and because we got, we could go with uh, Professor Rogoff here for five or six hours, maybe get to the <laughs> Italian referendum by 10 a.m. Uh, Wall Street time this morning. We will not do that. Coming up, uh, what many of you have been waiting for, particularly our listeners in Asia, in India, Ken Rogoff on the history-making efforts by Mr. Modi to limit cash in Indian society. Coming up, Ken Rogoff on the curse of cash. The curse of cash, what did Mr. Modi get wrong in India? He tried to apply Rogoff 101, and you made clear you can't do that in an emerging market. What did he get wrong? Well, I mean, the first thing, I don't know if he got it wrong because I don't know all the details, but I, I view the right way to do phasing out large bills is very slowly to avoid collateral damage. It's not technically easy to do. There are you know, a lot of people that you heard in addition <clears throat> to the tax evaders and criminals. He did it overnight. Uh, he really wanted to lash out. He's very mm -hmm. angry about corruption. And, of course, uh, India didn't have any big bills. Their biggest bill was about $15, uh, which is, you know, basically where I'm hoping to end up with countries like the United States and the Eurozone right. 20 or 30 years from now, by the way, no, no time soon. And he was taking away these bills that, uh, the, particularly the 500 rupee notes, $7.50 mm -hmm. that ordinary Indians yeah. use. One more question on this. What can we learn from Sweden? In your book, you drop in these nations that are affecting your plan. What can the United States learn from Sweden? Well, I, I, again, my book is really about the issues with cash and what surrounds it, and there's more than one way to skin a cat. I try to propose something very simple. <clears throat> Sweden does it on many dimensions. You can't easily find an ATM machine in Sweden. There are places in all of the Nordic countries where you might have to go 100 kilometers to find really? an ATM machine. Well, they were very worried about crime. They stripped cash out of a lot of the banks. They had a lot of violent crime. There's a lot of support in society. They also have very, very good mobile pay person-to-person -person mm. apps, way more sophisticated than ours. We need to rip up the script. And David Gurry, <laughs> you're going to help here uh, uh, with this. You gave, the, you had the ceremonial first move at the chess championships. And then Mr. Thiel, Peter Thiel, mm -hmm. did the same thing, I believe, yesterday. We have a newly minted chess champion. A veteran at 26. Is, is, is he <laughs> as good as you were? Is he different is it like tennis where we don't even know what the game was? Uh, first of all, Carlson uh, is, uh, was the champion and defended it. Uh, he's just turned 26 years old. As good as I was, he's so much better than I was. I mean, I couldn't light a candle to him. Uh, he's an incredible player. Uh, his Russian opponent put up a big fight. Uh, Putin followed it very closely. They weren't, couldn't do the Olympics, of course, so they were very excited about the chess match. Uh, his opponent played great. But I have to say, when I made the first move, uh, you know, I shook both their hands. Carlson was smiling and relaxed. Karyakin looked like he was about to be fed to the wolves. Ken Rogoff here, I, professor of public policy, economics, international grandmaster uh, as well. Yeah, David Gurr and I played chess. It was <laughs> embarrassing. He beat me in seven moves. David? 
when you watch uh, when you watch matches like these, when, when somebody who is skilled at chess, who's played chess for a long time, watches, uh, is it for pure enjoyment, or is is he or she uh, learning new new opens, learning new moves? How does one watch uh, a match like this? I, I mean, watching Carlson is just such a pleasure. Um, he manages to press in these creative ways. He wins positions where Bobby Fischer, who arguably might have been the greatest player of all time until maybe Kasparov and Carlson. I mean, Bobby Fischer would have given me a draw, whereas Carlson's just starting to go to work. Uh, and it ju- it's just beautiful. And his opponent, by the way, was incredibly mm. creative. He defended positions where he looked like he was dead and he did these risky creative things it was a really fantastic match what's your sense of the the, the health of the game uh, these days down at the fulton market building in, in lower manhattan they had a vip lounge this was streamed uh, worldwide how do you gauge the interest in chess right well, now? i mean the interest in this match was just phenomenal you have to remember chess is an online game uh even more than say football is a tv sport so they had you know certainly millions of people just watching every move online paid subscribers and then it was shown live on television in many countries, and particularly Russia. You, Red Square was just filled with people like it was New Year's Eve watching the game. It's, it's still very, very popular. It's interesting, despite computers coming in, uh, chess is as popular as ever. Uh, and just very quickly, this lasted many weeks. How, how, did these, how are these matches structured? Well, I mean, I just say the physical component is very, very important. Uh, Carlson always has trained physically, and this was really the first time he came up against an opponent who was in the kind of shape he was in. Think of taking a a six-hour exam every day for several weeks in a row. It's going to grind anybody down. Plus, you got to study for the exam. Let's not forget. (laughs) So there's a huge physical component. Carlson typically tears people up in the fifth and sixth hour, and this guy, Karyakin, was just right with him. We're going to have to leave it there. Ken Rogoff, thank you. Thank Just you. Just superb. The book, my book of the year. Read it. It is controversial. The Curse of Cash. Daniel Jurgen, next. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. David Gura with Tom Keene. The news broke yesterday while we were on air. OPEC members had come to a deal at their meeting in Vienna, a production target of 32.7 million barrels a day. By all accounts, a pretty broad deal. I want to bring in perhaps the, the preeminent expert on OPEC, on the global energy market. That's Dan Jurgen, vice chairman of IHS, founder of IHS Cambridge Energy Research Associates, author, of course, of The Quest and The Prize. Dan Jurgen, great to have you with us this morning. Thank you. Good morning. I mentioned the the relative broadness of that deal. Did it surprise you, A, that we got a deal, and B, that it seemed so broad? Well, going into the deal, I had about a 70% probability that they would do a deal. It uh, it was certainly, though, a cliffhanger at the end. And when you had basically, on the one hand, the the specter of the onslaught of uh, new waves of Saudi oil versus uh, Iranian uh, negotiating uh, talents. Uh, But at the end, I think... uh, Self-interest uh, prevailed among all these countries, and there was enough wiggle room in the deal that everybody could claim a victory. We were talking about OPEC, of course. We were also talking about Russia, not a member uh, of the cartel. Explain why Russia was playing such an outsized role here in these deliberations. Well, since the late 1990s, uh, OPEC has tried to, when it in, back then too, to bring Russia into uh, sort of solving the market problem at that point when there was a collapse in oil prices. And Russia said they'd go along, but they didn't. But this time, uh, Russia was much more actively involved. 
the energy minister, Alexander Novak, uh, has been out front on this really since early in, uh, in 2016. And even President Putin at one point gathered all of the CEOs of the Russian oil industry in a room and said, this is earlier in the year, I'm in favor of a freeze. Uh, are you all in favor of a freeze? And remarkably, everybody was in favor of a freeze. So I think that the Russians looking, if you look at their budget, you look at their sovereign wealth funds and where they were, they were going to move into a situation of a lot more financial pressure. So I think they were eager to get a deal. The big thing was to get them to agree to a cut and not just a freeze. Daniel Jurgen, in, in perusing the prize, and you go back to 1986 in the sobering moment for the cartel, are they at that point now? Is there a, a psychological mindset of the cartel in Saudi Arabia that is equivalent or similar to the uh, agony of 1986? Well, I think that's, you know, that's probably the best analogy to uh, where uh, the market's been for the last two years. And I think then, too, there was a resistance to do anything. And finally, when everybody was looking at uh, how far down prices would stay or might go, uh, they finally were able to come together. And I think that was the same situation here. Because remember, uh, Tom, two years ago, uh, OPEC resigned. It quit. It said, we're out of the business of market management. And now they're back. And I think it's that they looked over the side of the abyss and saw that's pretty down deep there. And if we go down there, we Mm -hmm. don't quite know how we get out of it. All of this is at the margin. What is the marginal dynamic you and uh, your shop will look for in the coming weeks and months from this supposed cartel? Well, I think it will be, of course, a degree of compliance and uh, the so-called secondary sources that monitor uh, uh, output, and I I think we're one of them. Uh, Everybody will look at those numbers. Uh, uh, The countries will look at the numbers, and the other communities that's really important, the traders will look at it. And also the hedge funds will look at it and and vote, in effect, in the market whether they think the deal will be there. Often when these things start off, they're shaky. There's a lot of skepticism. It's only a six-month deal. What they're really trying to do is buy time, get through the winter when inventories would normally build, try and prevent that from happening, and get to a more balanced market in the spring. That's what this is. This is more like a a sprint than a, a marathon. How is a producer in, say, Oklahoma watching the, the goings-on in, in Vienna? What's his sense of, of uh, what's His happening? sense are two things. One is a giant sigh of relief, and the other is a rush of adrenaline. And I think we saw that the same thing in the, in the stock markets uh, yesterday. Uh, one guy actually said to me, he said, you know, we're holding our breath until, uh, until uh, November 30th. And they had to hold it for several days there until they, you know, got to an agreement. But I think this says that uh, people will feel more confident. They'll be investing. We'll mm-hmm. see rig counts go up. And we think, yeah. you know, if the agreement roughly holds, and it's only going to roughly hold, it's not going to be a perfect agreement, uh, then we'll see U.S. production turning around right. and uh, in, increase by the by this time next year. Uh, We would be rude if we did not speak about the history-making new administration we have. First of all, have you been called by the transition team? Would Professor Juergen, Dr. Juergen, be part of a Trump administration? I don't think so. Uh, I mean, I think they're still organizing themselves in terms of what they Mm want to do. Do we have a a national energy policy, Daniel Well, I think... um, I think we kind of summarize it uh, at IHS Market as uh, more rigs, less regs uh, is what we're going to see. I mean, you know, there'll be more activity. I think it 
you know, I think in the first instance, people think there'll be this vast rolling back of regulations. I don't think that's the case. First of all, a lot of much of oil production is governed by state regulations, not federal regulations. But I think what it does mean is that we're not going to see another wave of additional regulations. I think that's the kind of the the starting the going in point. Mm. Let's leave it there. Daniel Jurgen, thank you so much. A short visit here. Really, uh, after history uh, in uh, Vienna, the quest is his uh, latest effort, and it's really remarkably good. I was surprised, David. I did not expect the drama out of Vienna. No, and, and I, I was taken meeting. by the drama leading up yeah. to it as well and how quickly the, the meeting itself seemed seemed to go. But, uh, you know, we'd been through this, as we mentioned, time and time again yeah. over these last few meetings. There was talk of a deal <laughs> and then uh, yeah. no deal. So I think uh, we'll be waiting to see here how cohesive OPEC looks going forward, how disciplined the, yeah. the cartel is going to be going forward as it tries to enforce this deal. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. David, I want you to bring in our, our, our next guest. We've had Kenneth Rogoff, Daniel Jurgen, and now another wonderful guest. But we need to frame this. David, we need to do this right. A little bit of foggy bottom game show. <laughs> when only three or four candidates, depending on the season, are left, they are interviewed rather than being assigned a task. Executives from various companies interview the finalists and report their assessments to the host. Based on the interviews, a boardroom meeting and firing takes place leaving two candidates. I don't know if that's The Apprentice, as described in Wikipedia, <laughs> or if that's our selection of the next Secretary of State. And many of us saw CNN correspondent Jim Acosta's photograph from Jean Georges the other night of Donald yes. Trump sitting uh, with one Mitt Romney, former governor of Massachusetts, uh, former presidential candidate uh, as well. Nicholas Burns here, a professor of the practice of diplomacy at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University, joining us here uh, in New York. Uh, is Mitt Romney the forerunner here? Who else uh, is in the running here? Who else are the, the finalists? Well, he's certainly Mitt Romney's certainly one of the finalists. Um, you also have David Petraeus, very, very smart, experienced general. And you have Senator Bob Corker, the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee. All these three people have in-depth international experience, especially General Petraeus. All of them are mature people of even temperament. All of them have credibility, both here and also uh, overseas. And so I think that... Um, it's okay. That's that's the, the ambassador that's phone. Right. We only let ambassadors <laughs> have their phone on in the studio. Right. Red Sox red. Yeah, right. exactly. Well, that's exactly what it is. But... If you think about it, Donald Trump is going to be the very first president in the history of the United States, our 45th, mm. with no prior public experience, political experience, military experience. He's going to need a lot of help. He's a smart guy. He's obviously succeeded in New York and real estate. But international politics is a very different game. And so I think any one of these three would center him give him the credibility he needs, and I think make up for some of the one-dimensional nature of the current national security appointments. General Flynn's a very smart guy. Mm. He's a military officer who's been a counter-terrorist person. Sure. You need someone who can think broadly and act broadly globally. Is that message getting telegraphed to him? We saw his pick for Treasury Secretary, uh, Steven Steve Mnuchin, a, a, a loyalist, somebody who ran his campaign finance operation. Are you worried here uh, that that message that he needs to pick somebody with a lot of experience in statecraft is, is not going to get the job? 
I'm not sure any of us know because all that matters is what's in the sure. mind of Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. But this this team of rivals thing, it, it, it wasn't just Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. It was Lincoln, of course, with uh, appointing Seward as Secretary of State. I think it makes sense for this government. I come from a world, uh, international politics and diplomacy, where experience actually counts for a lot. You know, Trump's going to have to go up against right. Vladimir Putin, mm. Xi Jinping. These are <clears throat> consequential, very tough people. <clears throat> I want to tie two strands together here, Ambassador. The first one is Joseph Nye, who is just with us, the giant of international relations. Yes, my good friend adamant, and colleague. Yes, <laughs> and adamant, adamant about a strong America, America exceptionalism, the negativity of America is unfounded. And then I want to tie in the massive miscalculation of all to how weak Russia was when it collapsed. Our intelligence there really wasn't, I believe, that good. Is Mr. Trump and his supporters misjudging the state of America within the international community? I think so. And what bothered me during the campaign was Donald Trump talking down American power, but also Bernie Sanders on the left talking down American power. I see a country, the United States, we are the strongest economy in the world. We're growing, maybe not at China's 6 right. or 7%, but we're growing. We have the knowledge economy, skill set, and I think dynamics to do well in this century. Strongest military, politically the most influential. Joe and I will tell you, culturally, the greatest soft power, the greatest cultural attraction. We're at the top of our game. We're not weak. We're not failing, is but there we a, do need leadership. Is there an historical precedent for us being, quote unquote, at the top of our game in what we observed in this election, which is not so much the walls, but boy, those oceans are comfortable to keep us away I from think, the international I issue. think there is, and you and I are thinking alike. It's Woodrow Wilson. It's the our victory in the First World War, our buoyant economy in 1919 and 20, and then we <clears> tossed <throat> it all away by going towards protectionism eventually, and also thinking that we could withdraw from the rest of the world. We can't in a globalized 21st century. Is there a mirrored hall where everyone can get together? Are we so away from the Westphalian system of the the Palace of Versailles that Mr. Trump's not going to have that tool? We know, I think hopefully... He gets a team around him, and whether it's Jim, General Jim Madison Defense or Mitt Romney or Bob Corker in state, who, who carefully kind of nudge him towards internationalism. That doesn't mean giving away the story. It means that American economic power and future depends on trade deals. If we walk away from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, that's 40% of global GDP. The Chinese will move in with their own highly protectionist for China, trade regime, will be at a disadvantage for a generation. We have an opportunity for a free trade agreement with the European Union. It also bothered me that the left, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, talked down trade. I think we're a free trade society, and we ought to stick with that. We had the pleasure of speaking on, on election night. Thank you again for, for coming in uh, as those votes were being tabulated. And George Mitchell was on the, the show uh, yes. as well. And I was yeah. thinking, is there an opportunity here, diplomatically, for there to be someone... Uh, like a special envoy to Russia to bridge this relationship? Is, is is there a need here to focus more doggedly on improving that relationship with somebody in a capacity like uh, Senator Mitchell had in the past? Well, there's so many people you could choose for sure. that. Se- former Secretary James Baker, Condoleezza Rice, Robert Gates. But here's the deal. We don't want to just have a good relationship with Russia. We want to have the right relationship mm. with Russia. And right now, the deal he wants to make with Donald Trump, mm-hmm. he wants the sanctions lifted. These are the energy and financial sanctions that have been very difficult for the Russian economy, and we shouldn't give that up. Because if we give up the sanctions, these are European Union, Canadian, American sanctions, then Putin, his 
stealing Crimea, his division of Ukraine, is rewarded. And that's the bad signal to send. So if there's, Trump should not be looking for a deal. I think that Putin responds to strength and conviction. He's that kind of a guy. He takes advantage of weakness. And so the right strategy for Trump and his new Secretary of State is tough-minded, align yourself with Angela Merkel, keep the sanctions on, the EU will vote on this in the next 10 days, mm -hmm. and then wait for Putin to crack. So sometimes diplomacy is just not making deals. It's being strong and protecting yeah. your interests. Let's go back right? to let's go back to Roosevelt. How does Nick Burns show the flag over the next four years? This commune, I mean, first of all, I think we're going to have all generals in the cabinet the way we're going. But are there are there too many generals being involved? How do we show the flag as a nation? To the rest of the world. So, you know, obviously, if you can get someone like Jim Mattis to be defense secretary, that's a good thing for the United States. But you don't want to have a cabinet that is primarily in, in national security, military in nature, nature, because you do have civilian control, this tradition in the United States over the military. And people from civilian life, whether it's a diplomat like Condoleezza Rice or a politician like Mitt Romney, should Secretary have a different Rice set of be skills. I, I, this is too important. Should Condoleezza Rice step forward to provide leadership? Well, I want to get you in trouble here. <laughs> don't get. She's a very close friend of mine, so don't get me in trouble. I think she's very happy where she is. That's uh, not what I asked. Should she, she step <laughs> forward and provide leadership to America? Well, she is stepping forward in a lot of different ways to provide that leadership. But, you know, the president of the United States is the one who has to call, and he's not going to mm. call. He's already made it clear there are four, as they say, reality TV Very jargon, good, yeah. finalists. Finalists. I think this campaign, This, by the way, this selection process has been too public. It's demeaning to the people who won't make it. We've never had this before in either a Republican mm -hmm. or Democratic administrations. Not the right thing. Thank you for visiting Nick Burns with us. Pleasure. Former ambassador to Greece, Pleasure. among other... Uh, services to America's international relations worldwide. This is Bloomberg. This is a great honor for David Gurr and myself. We spoke with Kenneth Rogoff earlier on his economics and had what a privilege to speak to Ken Rogoff about chess and his thoughts on uh, the, the recent tournament. He is the U.S. chess champion, Fabiana Carano, who joins us right now. Fabiana, good morning. Morning. Thanks uh, what, for having me on. Well, it's wonderful to have you on. I want to go to David Gurr's Park Slope, Brooklyn. You moved from Miami to Park Slope, Brooklyn years ago, and you had the privilege of a giant of chess as your first coach at age five or six, Bruce Pandolfini. All of us have read yeah. Bruce Pandolfini. What it was? What was it like as a child to work with Bruce Pandolfini? Uh, well, just growing up in the chess scene in New York and working with Bruce was was great because there's so much history behind it. Uh, he's worked with a lot of fantastic players. He he commented on the uh, on the 1972 match between Bobby Fischer and, and Boris Spassky when when he was just you know coming onto the scene. Um, and he has a very patient style, which is great for you know a young up-and-coming chess player. He kind of nurtures talent, which um, which helped me a lot. And he's never harsh. Uh, I, I guess you you've probably seen the the movie Searching for Bobby Fischer, yeah. where um, where Bruce is portrayed by Ben Kingsley. And he's very different from how he was portrayed in that movie. Although <laughs> Ben Kingsley did do a great job as well. <laughs> 
You know, my daughter goes to school uh, at, at the school where you had your first chess lessons, and I marvel at how young the, the kids are there playing chess when I go to, to pick her up. There's mm-hmm. a sense here that there there is a gift for chess. There are chess prodigies, but this is hard work, and there, there's a lot of uh, practice, a lot of uh, work that goes into becoming a great chess player. Ken Rogoff told us that uh, this morning. Talk a bit about how you made that jump from somebody who was interested in the game, indeed good at the game, uh, to one of the, the, the greatest in the world. I think in the United States you have an enormous amount of very talented young players starting chess at you know age five, six. Um, I started when I was five years old, and there was uh, a large group of kids who were as talented as me or, or more talented. And um, most of them became grandmasters, you know, very top players, but um, but didn't stick with it. You know, moved into um, academics and and uh, chose other paths. While I basically played chess professionally from the, like the age of uh, 13, 14, and um, chess has always been like the main focus for me. So I think if you take a young player with some talent and put them in a, in a strict chess environment of playing and studying chess constantly, then there's a good chance that they they will you know, reach the, the top of chess. The chess playing, the chess following world has been focused on lower Manhattan here over these last few weeks. Magnus Carlsen uh, winning the World Chess uh, Championship. There was a, a VIP room there, a lot of people watching these games, uh, these matches indeed from, from, from around uh, around the world. You've played him before. Tell us a bit about his style, what he's like as a player. Well, Magnus is a player who, when he gets a better position, uh, even a, a position where the advantage is maybe not visible to most people, or extremely minuscule, he he tries to nurture that advantage and turn it slowly turn it into something more, something which is more tangible and, and um, enough for a win. And he he does that over the course of many hours. Um, he might play you know a seven hour game trying to turn um, what looks like nothing into into something and eventually win the game like that. Uh, so it is very dangerous to to get a bad position against him. While against other players in the world. Um, even though obviously you don't want to get a bad position, you might have more hopes of of trying to salvage the game. Uh, so against Magnus, it's possible it's possible to win. And he, I mean, even he lost a, a game in this last World Championship match. Um, so I, I have I have beaten him uh, several times, but it really requires that you go for the throat, that you don't be afraid of him, um, and that you you know you don't try to let's say go into a defensive mode when he might slowly strangle you, and you, you try to get oh. him from, from move one. We are honored. Fabiana Carano, thank you so yeah. much. He is the chess champion of the United States. And, of course, uh, I urge you to look at all the different coverage of what we saw. What a great privilege to have Ken Rogoff and Fabiana Carano on Bloomberg Surveillance on the same day on chess. That's what, that's what the youngest does, David, when we play chess at home. Uh-huh. She goes, goes for, for the throat. throat. <laughs> she is, she's tough. She's, she's known to move... All of a sudden, you you know, you look away at the Red Sox or whatever on TV, and yeah. one of your bishops is gone. She's three moves ahead. I'm just no, w- she's taking <laughs> pieces, no, she's taking pieces off the board. <laughs> Struck by what Praviana said there, and, and Ken Rogoff as well, just about how long these matches can be, six or seven hours, yeah. and the, yeah, the physical was, rigor, yeah. the strength required to, to play a match like yeah. that. Pretty extraordinary. Well, it's great. This is, what we, this is why we do this show, the surprises, folks, treat, of, yeah. of dealing with this and dealing with Bob Moon as well, <laughs> you know, chess champion of surveillance uh, as well. He, he does that when he's not doing the STEM report. He's, he's playing chess out with Michael Barr.
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.